do you know that Titanic's like my biggest fear in the whole world? I know it's irrational, but um oh, drowning for sure. Like no, no, specifically by. like the Titanic. Specifically being on a cruise ship, you know. No, <laughs> not sinks. even cruise ships. I've been on a cruise ship, just the Titanic. <laughs> like the literal ship that sank in 1912, the week that Fenway it's Park at the bottom of the ocean, but it's still uh, your biggest I know. fear. <laughs> I'll explain later. You ready? Yes. <laughs> okay. Welcome back to Girl at the Game. I'm your host, Gabrielle, and with me as always is my co-host, Al. I'm glad that you go by like Gab or your full name. I like it's that. literally Gab, Gabs, or Gabrielle because I all my teachers in school called me Gabby. You know, having you have a long name, but like your name at least is like spellable because there's really only one way to spell Alexandra. Well, I get a like, lot of Alexanders and a lot of Alexandrias, but for Alexandria the most part, has a place in Egypt, right? <laughs> well, I get a lot of Gabriel as if I'm right. So like you get Alexandra, I get Gabriel, yep, exactly. And so I was like, okay, well, if I make it Gabby. This was like in elementary school. I was like, I'll go by Gabby. It'll be easier because no one ever spelled my name right. I was always Gabriella or, or yeah. Gabriel. It made no sense. So I was like, I'll shorten it. But there's five different ways to spell Gabby too. And I also got Gabe and Gabby. I was like, screw Gabby. this. This is not worth it. Gabby's like Israeli, I guess, for Gabe. Okay. I was like, screw this. I'm going back to Gabrielle. But some of my oldest friends in the world still call me Gabby from elementary school. And they're the only right. ones that I let do it because it's like, you've been grandfathered in but I hate it so much. I think we all just like really don't like our own names to begin with. Well, I actually like my But if I were you, I yeah, you should like your full name. I also feel like for me, like so many people would have made up the nickname because like I'm so Gabby chatty. Well, I was really shy as a kid. So it was funny because I like- didn't So did they use it sarcastically for you? No, people would be like, why aren't you more Gabby? And I was like, "Mm." (laughs) Al, how was your weekend? It was great. I went home to Western Mass, saw my mom, went out to my favorite ice cream place with my family, which was great. That's so nice. I miss ice cream. All the places here are closed. They're not doing ice cream yet. Something really funny about this ice cream place I went to, it's this little mom and pop ice cream, burgers, hot dogs, french fries, shakes, classic little diner in the middle of this small farm town. It's called Cindy's Drive-In. The outside is so picturesque, retro neon sign out front. So a few years ago, I remember scrolling through Twitter and seeing a rap video on the timeline that was getting quote tweeted. Wait, they really filmed this at Cindy's in Granby? This wicked raunchy rap video. Some Brooklyn artist paid to rent out Cindy's to film this video. And it's hilarious. Women twerking in bikinis on the ice cream counter and provocatively licking the ice cream cones. It's so funny. And the owners of the restaurant are like 70 years old and found out afterwards what was filmed by these people that rented it out. And they're absolutely horrified. It's so funny. You've seen Borat, right? Yes. Oh my God. So, you know, and I have like the craziest Borat story, but I can't. Whatever, I'll just tell it. So first of all, Borat was filmed in Newton, Mass, close to where you and I both live. So the scene where he and his 
companion, that other guy, I've only seen the movie like twice. They go to stay at the bed and breakfast that's owned by the two little old Jewish people. So that's two, that's real Jewish people who live in Newton, Mass. And they also didn't know what was going to be like the premise of their scenes. So the whole thing where they think that the Jews turn into bugs and like are attacking them and they run away, they had no idea. And so when they saw the movie, they were super mad and they tried to sue. But Sasha Baron Cohen's a Jew. And so I don't think that the lawsuit ended up going <laughs> anywhere because they were like, well, he's not being anti-Semitic because he's a Jew. <laughs> and then my other story about this, which shout out to one of my best friends since I was six years old, he and I were watching Borat for the first time the summer after our freshman year of high school. And our school bus route drove past the house that those two little old Jewish people from the B&B scene lived in. Like we knew they were filming there because our school bus route was redirected for months and it was really annoying. It took so much longer to get to school. And he and I are watching the movie and the scene where Borat and his friend are fighting over the Pamela Anderson magazine Naked is on. And my best friend's tiny little grandmother who only speaks Russian and doesn't speak a word of English. She's like 100 years old now. She comes running into the room. She sees what's on the TV. She starts screaming at him in Russian and oh, asking no. him porn. And he's screaming back at her in Russian, trying to convince her that we're not watching porn. But there's like two <laughs> men on the screen with like a Pamela Anderson magazine. And we were like 14, 15 years old. It was absolutely nuts. Anyway, for life. <laughs> yeah. your favorite Celtics ex-boyfriend, my least favorite Celtics ex-boyfriend, Kyrie, challenged Kemba to a one-on-one, kind of. Which is very yeah. Kyrie to be to kind of challenge someone, but not really because you're actually kind of... A, a wuss who's been hiding from the Celtics for the whole year. Yes, I love this. Over the weekend, Kyrie was on an Instagram live session and was kind of just talking about um, the rumors about him wanting to face multiple players, including Kemba, in, a, in some one-on-ones. And the quote from Kyrie was, uh, me and K-Walk, I want that matchup. I want K-Walk. We have to. That's my matchup, blah, blah, blah. Also referring to him, though, as his big bro, you know, we got mutual respect, but I know everyone wants to see it. One's out of New York, the other's out of New Jersey. So this would be so much fun to watch. I know you're a big Kemba girl, so who are you taking? Obviously, I'm taking Kemba, and I'm assuming you're taking Kyrie, because as you said when we had Anna Horford on, would you call yourself a Kyrie apologist? <laughs> a Kyrie apologist. My whole thing with Kyrie, we talked about this. We don't need to get into it again in detail. Kyrie saying he wants to challenge Kemba or literally anyone else is kind of like a guy being like, I have a girlfriend in Canada. Of course, you're saying you want to challenge him now when you've been hiding from the Celtics literally all year, didn't even come to like one of the games at the Garden. That is a good point because all of Kyrie's injuries and his rehab really conveniently lined up with games at TD Garden having Mm -hmm. to go back there. But that being said... Kyrie and Kemba are two of my favorite point guards in the league for sure. But Kyrie is just such a pure hooper. When he's in one on his game, he is just one of the funnest players to watch for me. The things he can do with the basketball, it's like seriously a magnet to his fingertips sometimes. I don't know how he gets stuff off, but it would be a blast to watch regardless. They should seriously work on making that a thing. I'd watch I don't know if I'd pay for it, but I would definitely seek out an illegal Reddit stream for a very long time to watch that. 
I would actually pay for that. I mean, people pay for, you know, those wrestling matches. I don't do any of that stuff, but people pay like 50 bucks. And sometimes those matches are over in, you know, a couple minutes. Yeah. One-on-one matchups around the NBA. I honestly think that's a good idea right now if you had two players who lived near enough to each other that they could meet at a safe location and both wear Just masks. Just get all the guys in the NBA that already tested positive for coronavirus. <laughs> you can get KD in there, Marcus Smart. It'd be fun. But uh, speaking on paying for sports, we have sports back. UFC came back. I'll be honest, I didn't watch any of it. I hate fighting. But I also, that's... We had to mention it, right? (laughs) Did we, though? I mean, I guess we we should mention it just so that people who listen to this show know that we probably will never talk about UFC or fighting on this. Except that I did hear... Except for the drama. That Mike Tyson wants to make a comeback. I know that's not UFC, but kind of just deserved a shout out. Mike Tyson has reached the point in quarantine where he wants to make a comeback. Well, there is a reason that this is called Girl at the Game and not Girl at what is <laughs> the Octagon? Like I don't know the ring. So now to get to sports that we actually know what we're talking about. There was a report from Ken Rosenthal and Evan Drellick of The Athletic that the Players Union isn't going to sign off on the revenue plan for this shortened season. Basically, the league wants to change it so that players get paid based on the revenue of their teams. And that's just not something that players are going to be okay with. And I can understand why. Players shouldn't be faulted for their teams struggling. They're already being asked to make huge sacrifices to come back to the game as it is. And yet again, the billionaire team owners trying to screw over players. And a lot of people online are like, well, players are all millionaires. No, you know, not everyone makes Mike Trout money. A lot of these players, they're making the major league minimums and they really need that money. They really need to support their families. They're already losing a lot of playing time. They've made a lot of concessions because of the sports shutdown. And the bottom line is there's no player money that's like owner money. You know what I mean? I love the quote that the MLBPA came out with. The league is trying to take advantage of a global health crisis to get what they've failed to achieve in the past and to anonymously negotiate through the media for the last several days suggests that they know exactly how this will be received. And it's just like kind of shady to use the times that everyone's going through right now to... To make these changes when, yeah, it's these guys at the end of the day have to agree that this is worth the risk to their families. Capitalizing on a crisis for your own gain is the crappiest thing you can do, um, especially when people are living in such a time of fear. It's just not the right move. And it's a bad look for MLB when they already have had so many bad looks this year. All anyone's talked about with baseball this year is the Astros cheating, domestic abusers, the Red Sox cheating, people getting fired not wanting to pay minor leaguers when the sports shutdown first happened. So minor leaguers were basically going to go hungry and have no insurance, like all this kind of stuff. You would think that they would want to have some good PR, not screwing over the players who make their sport possible so that they make money. But apparently that's too logical for them. But I'd rather talk about Michael Jordan playing baseball because we finally got to see that. Yes, let's recap the MJ doc. I think these two episodes were my favorite so far. Or at least episode seven. I thought they were great. They were definitely really hard to watch. And I thought that after last week when we saw Kobe Bryant, it was going to be hard. But this episode had a lot more really deeply personal stuff and crazy footage of Michael Jordan. But let's talk about the baseball first. I just want to say right off the bat, literally, pun intended, 
no Michael Jordan baseball disrespect on this podcast. The guy didn't play baseball for a decade and then came back, started with a 13 game hitting streak and eventually ended up hitting 200 and stole like 50 bases. And people are shaming him for that. Really? I don't think people understand hitting a baseball thrown by an MLB level pitcher. I don't think people realize that that's one of the hardest things to do in sports, if not the hardest thing to do in professional sports. And it takes practice. There's a reason why these guys go to spring training for weeks before the season starts. It's like, and why you, you don't just wake up in the morning and grab a baseball bat and be able to just crush it after not really doing it for a while. Or in Michael Jordan's case, really ever at that level. They're talking like he played professional baseball, then left professional baseball to play in the NBA, and then came back to professional baseball. He played baseball in high school and then started playing in double A for professional baseball. And you know that it's only Twitter trolls and like jealous wannabes who say stuff like this because actual professional athletes who are like, I could never play baseball. Dodgers pitcher Walker Bueller tweeted yesterday, I couldn't hit 200 in double A. If how long Tebow's been down there. Yeah, well, Tebow is no Jordan. Um, And no disrespect to Tebow, I like him. Yeah, (laughs) I like him too, but Tebow is more of a, I feel like a novelty for the Mets because Tebow has many a time been kind of clear that he's there, you know, as like a sideshow, which makes me feel bad for him. But Jordan was actually a talented baseball player and wanted to play baseball. And I sent you this athletic article. It was all his former teammates and coaches, including Terry Francona, talking about how hard he worked and how much he was improving throughout the season and saying he really showed improvement. It's not like he just kind of remained stagnant, treading water. He was really someone that Terry Francona thought could become a big leaguer. And if Terry Francona tells me that Michael Jordan could have been a big leaguer, I think I'm going to listen to the guy who reversed the curse. I love that Tito called managing Jordan like the greatest learning experience you could ever be thrust into. And it's funny how few people know that Tito managed Jordan because I'm friendly with Tito's son, Nick, and I texted him. People on Twitter are going nuts right now, realizing that your dad managed Jordan. And he's like, really? I thought everybody knew that. But yeah, the baseball slander, I'm just not here for it, especially because his baseball career was cut short by the players' strike in 94. Yeah. We, ne- we never really got to know. He walked away from the game because the game wasn't very fitting for right now, when I'm sure we're going to see a lot of minor leaguers be forced to walk away from the game, sadly. He walked away from the game because there was no game, and he was the kind of competitive person. We see this the whole documentary. He said last week, he's like, I don't have a gambling problem. I have a competition problem. If there's no baseball, Jordan's going back to basketball. He needs something. It's crazy to think about what would happen if they did play that year in 94. What would have happened with like Jordan's basketball career? Does he still go back to basketball? Probably. But how much longer does it take? And does he ever become a big leaguer before? Does he go to the Chicago White Sox and play a couple seasons or even just play a couple games till he hits a major league home run? Feels like he checks it off his bucket list and says, okay, I did this. Now I can go back to basketball. I feel like he would have to at least get to that point. And check that off his list. We saw a lot of it this episode too, just talking about his father, him and his father's relationship and his father always wanting him to play baseball. So I think if that's a goal he set out for himself to play baseball in honor of his dad, then that's something he's definitely not walking away from baseball until that happens. Like it's Michael Jordan, right? Yeah. 
And before we talk about his dad, because that was a very large portion of the episodes from last night, if Jordan stays in baseball, does baseball eclipse basketball? No. No? I don't think so. Found another person and tried to make them into a Jordan 2.0? Do we think that Jordan is going to get into baseball, eventually make the big leagues, and then be the best baseball player ever? Or is it just still Michael Jordan playing on a baseball team? And I think that the damage was already done. And I say damage sarcastically. Jordan's influence in the NBA had already changed the game for the future and for future players coming in. I think that awakening of the NBA had already happened. So him leaving to baseball, no matter what happens with his baseball career, I think the NBA was already rolling full speed ahead. I think you're right. But I also think baseball would have been more successful over the last 20 years if Jordan stays, because I think there just would have been a very- How marketable he was. Well, he was so marketable. But then again, you know, there are all these marketable stars in baseball now, and MLB doesn't know how to market them. So- You never really know. But the other question is, is Jordan's legend at the levels we know it now because he unretired and came back for a second three-peat? Or would Jordan have still been the legend that we consider him now if he had never come back to basketball? I'm never going to know. But I think think the whole unretiring, the infamous I'm back facts and all of that, I think that kind of adds, that second chapter adds so much to the Michael Jordan canon. You can't really argue against how massive like, that comeback would have broken the internet. Especially given all the intangibles and all the side stories going into it. The rumors of gambling causing him to leave the NBA. The whole thing with his dad's murder, like we mentioned. It's such fascinating stuff that, yeah, I wonder how today's media landscape would have handled all this. So should we talk about his dad? Yeah. This was hard to watch. And it's also so crazy now, looking back on it, you know, over 20 years later, that they have all of this footage, especially winning his first championship without his father on Father's Day and him crying, holding the game ball on the floor. I really felt it was unbelievably heartbreaking. And also, I just, I felt like we were trespassing on a moment that it's incredible to see it on film, but it definitely feels like something that shouldn't have been filmed. Yeah. And it's funny because he had the final watch, the final cut. His mom saying he won't allow you to see the emptiness, talking about how much Jordan kept inside. It's such a different kind of mentality and way of living than we're seeing in the NBA now. There's so much open talk about mental health, destigmatizing it. And I think that's really important because people were really awful when Jordan retired the first time and said his gambling might have had something to do with his father's murder, Stern banning him from the NBA, kind of forcing him to faux retire because of the gambling, all of these things. No, his dad went missing for weeks and then was found brutally murdered. And you really think that he was ready to go back to playing the game that he loved so much that he shared with his father? I would retire and move to a lighthouse somewhere and I would never come back. (laughs) A lighthouse. I love that. 
right? Anchorman two of me, but it just shows you kind of how different athletes were treated then that people just weren't talking about mental health. The journalists at the time, just so rabid, digging up any possible storyline other than his father was taken from him far too soon and it's terrible and he should be allowed to grieve and do whatever. Baseball is the thing that he does to heal himself. Power to him. Yeah. On a lighter note from these episodes was the Space Jam talk and Jordan Dome footage. I could literally watch an entire episode just of Jordan Dome footage. I thought it was so cool, so unique. Yet another reason why the NBA is the coolest of all the sports leagues. And also love love Space Jam. I've probably seen it a hundred times in my life and it never gets old. And apparently the Jordan Dome shootarounds were what solidified Dennis Rodman's decision to join the Bulls. So that's, that's pretty so Rodman. cool. It's very Rodman, but it's very cool that something like that happened. With currently no NBA, NHL, or MLB, you might think there's nothing to bet on. Well, you'd be wrong. Our exclusive partner, Bet Online, still has hundreds of events, games, and props to wager on, from their online casino to poker and blackjack, as they are bringing the Vegas to you. Missing the NFL? No problem. Bet Online has live daily Madden NFL 20 simulations you can wager on. If you're into entertainment betting, you can still bet on Survivor, Big Brother, American Idol, stock prices, and even the Nathan's Hot Dog Eating Contest. All open 24 hours a day and all online. Visit the website or use your mobile device and join today to receive your new welcome bonus with promo code CLNS50. Bet online, your online wagering solution. The only thing that kind of annoyed me was they were talking in the documentary about how he filmed all day and then worked out and practiced in the dome till really late at night and how they couldn't believe he had the energy for it. And how did he have the time? And I guarantee you moms all around the world were laughing in an annoyed way, being like, well, he had all the time because he wasn't with his family. Right. We still have not seen. Not a single mention of his children. They haven't even mentioned that he has a wife and kids. They haven't even said the word wife or child. You just see him standing around (laughs) with his wedding ring on. Is that him trying to shelter them at this point? His son, Marcus, is live tweeting the documentary. You can't really shelter your kids in the age of social media. It's so bizarre. It's really weird, especially because he has a version of his wife and kids in Space Jam. But it just was kind of an annoying moment. It's a very typical gender thing to wonder how a man has all the time in the world to be a successful person and a father and a husband. And it's like, no, because he was spending 20 plus hours of his day away from his family while his wife and probably other people were taking care of his kids. That's how he did it. It's not like he was Murphy Brown doing it all at the same time. He was prioritizing something else, which is fine. Just don't pretend that that's not the situation. It's just really weird. If we go the entire series without even a mention, then I'm going to start asking some questions on Twitter. Or even the mention of his current marriage. It's just weird. You're seeing other people's personal lives in this, his mom's in the documentary. And we talked about this last week. It's just interesting because we thought, well, maybe it's just that they're waiting to talk all about his family stuff in the same episode. But we just got a whole episode basically devoted to his relationship with his father and his father's death. And still no mention of his family. So it's just kind of getting to the point where it's weird that there hasn't even been a mention. But the last thing that we uh, have to touch on before we move on is just Jordan being the captain of Team Petty. So much of that in these two episodes. It's legendary (laughs) shit talk. 
was not only shit talk, it's LeBradford Smith putting up 37 points against him one night and then him being the like, yeah, I'm gonna have that by half tomorrow. <laughs> and then he scores 36 points in the first quarter. Cool. BJ Armstrong having a one good game against him when he's on the Hornets, and now Jordan owns the Hornets. <laughs> you had to think there was a little bit when he bought that team. He's like, now if someone on the Hornets is really good and I don't like it, I can do whatever I want. He really is the petty king. It's also funny because there were so many different things that set him off in terms of him being petty. It's not like it was just someone being good in a game against him and him wanting to own them back. George Carl didn't say hi to him in a restaurant. He's like, I'm going to destroy that man's entire life. If you set Michael Jordan off, it doesn't matter how you did it. You're done for. When you're that competitive of a person, you really got to find those little chips on your shoulder everywhere you go because when it gets to a certain point, no one's really, who's really doubting you anymore? Someone might make a stupid comment, but... Do you mean like Reggie Miller? <laughs> yeah. Well, if Michael Jordan is the petty king, then Reggie Miller has some type of official title for shit talk because I don't think many did it like he did. Yeah, or Gary Payton being like, I just have to tire him out. You can't tire Michael Jordan out. But we should move on and we can talk about a new segment Yes, really excited about this new segment, but we feel like we're going to have to pull it out a lot. It's called Someone Take Their Phone Away. I'm super into this one too, just because we both spend so much time on Twitter and there's not really much else to do right now except like wait for an athlete to say something crazy. We're basically just going to highlight a couple weird things, good or bad, that athletes have been talking about on Twitter lately. And we're going to start with the king of bizarre tweets, Jose Canseco. Apparently, it looks like he has a little beef with Alex Rodriguez. It's a long-standing beef at this point. He has been calling A-Rod out for months, saying that A-Rod cheats on J-Lo. And he's like, J-Lo, contact me. I have proof. But for whatever reason, last night, so many tweets. He's really worried about the fact that Alex Rodriguez has more followers than him. The best tweet I thought was, it's so relatable. What does this guy have to do to get more followers? Shoot his finger off or something? And there's another one that's like, how does A-Rod have more followers than I do? He's boring and constantly lying in your face. Like, this is just, this is our segment name in a nutshell. Just like someone take his phone away. Though to be fair, he might get more followers if he keeps tweeting crazy shit about A-Rod. I personally loved when he said happy Mother's Day to everyone except for Alex Rodriguez and he's a mother all right dot <laughs> And also so clever. He also went full Jerry Maguire and tweeted, I complete you, Alex. Anyway, Jose Canseco always tweeting crazy stuff. Good for a follow if you're bored. He's always tweeting that he's found aliens and Bigfoot. It's just crazy. So while he's using Twitter to be a total psycho, we have Brianna Stewart using it for a pre-epic FU to promote the WNBA. Joe Budden, he has a podcast. He probably was watching the MJ doc, getting nostalgic about the Seattle Supersonics. And he tweeted last night, Seattle needs, deserves a basketball team. And Brianna yeah. Stewart quote tweeted it and was like, yo, we have one. Yeah, just literally, we have one, period. And shout out to her for that, because it's just so infuriating how women's sports are just completely overlooked. I understand the context of the Seattle Supersonics were briefly featured towards the end of the second episode in the embarrassing context of 
the announcers starting off that series by apologizing to the Seattle fans in advance, basically being like, sorry, you're here to get your asses beat by Michael Jordan and the Bulls. So like, that's rough. I get it. But at the same time, you have to understand that if you're going on Twitter and you say something pretty tone deaf, and it's happened to me before too, you're going to get a clap back. And uh, especially since women's sports are always getting shit on, like literally the amount of get in the kitchen replies to Brianna Stewart's clap back. Power to you, woman, because it is sometimes just so frustrating to be a woman in sports on social media for this exact reason. Basically, because people either forget we exist or don't care or don't want us to. So, yeah, that's this segment. Yeah, um, I guess now is a good time to play the interview for you guys. Um, This was really special for me personally because Angelique is a friend of mine. We went to high school together and she's been a huge role model for me for a very long time. And she has a really cool job. She's the lifestyle editor over at Patriots.com. That's right, the New England Patriots. Um, She's been to a bunch of Super Bowls. She gets great access with the team and hosts the Patriots Off Topic podcast, which it's one of my favorite podcast ideas because it gives you a look at the New England Patriots off the field and you get to see who they are as people which is really interesting because dealing with the Patriots traditionally like at games and practices they're so closed off they only give you certain quotes um so she gets a very interesting side of these guys so it was a great interview with her yes and another uh chance for me to flex my tiny baby football muscles We now welcome on Lifestyle <laughs> Editor and the host of the Patriots Off Topic podcast, Angelique Fisk. And full disclosure, you guys, her and I go way back. Like welcome way, on. way too far back. Thank you for having me. I'm so excited to be here, even virtually. I know. I know you have like a cool tapestry thing going on behind <laughs> you. Every time we do video calls for work, my boss is convinced I'm sitting by a shower curtain. And I'm like, no, nope, this is just my decorations in my bedroom. Yeah, guys, I get really great acoustics in my bathroom to talk to you. <laughs> so, yeah, we go way back. Angelique and I are from the same hometown. Shout out Ludlow, Mass. Ludlow High Represent School. Represent 413. <laughs> she was a senior when I was a freshman, and she wrote for our school paper and eventually pursued a career in journalism. I think you and I did student council together. Yes, I think I... God, I did student council for, I think, maybe one or two years. I think. I don't know. My high school is just such a blur at this point. Like, it, it really feels is. like it's forever ago. But yeah, yeah. The the newspaper was like my lifeline in high school, though. I was way, way too into it. <laughs> so as a little underclassman, because we were only in high school together for one year. I was a freshman. But as an underclassman, I would read the Cub. I was still too young to join newspaper class and I think write for it. But I would see you just out there writing these cool stories and I really like to write. So it was really cool. And Angelique kind of pursued her career, went to Quinnipiac, ended up working for a newspaper and then stumbled into a job with the Patriots. And I've been getting to have her as like a role model to look up to and like so fortunate because how many girls in this industry get to say that one of their influences went to their high school. You know what I mean? So, so excited to have you. Alex, you're going to make me cry right now. <laughs> oh my God. Bring out the tears. 
Oh my God. Right out the gate. God damn. So like naturally I've been looking up to you and naturally just a few months after you start a podcast, I start a podcast. Hey, you want to know what you're, I've told you this before. You are a thousand times better than I am at this, at this shit. You are so confident in your writing. It's unbelievable. I'm sorry to turn this into like a gush fest, but this is the point. Uh, We're all here to just like love on each other. And women building up women, right? That's the point of this show. Yeah, exactly. And I think, you know, we were so lucky, so young. I mean, our teacher, we had a rock star journalism teacher, Mr. Kanjemi. Shout out to to Charlie Kanjemi, who didn't even blink twice when he had two annoyingly involved women who were like, I'm writing about sports and that's it. And he just like, let us take it and run. I had a column my senior year, which is wild to think about now that um, I think it was out of left field, the Fisk poll, I think was what it was called. Um, I love that so but P O L L. I didn't make sense, but I really wanted to make the Fisk poll like part of it. But I, he let me go to practices, and I would just practice like with the baseball team. And I, I mean, I played tennis and I played soccer, but like nothing. I'm not athletic by any means. There's a reason I'm writing about sports and not famous for participating. And so like he let me just like kind of run with that those like crazy ideas that I had when I was 18, and to have that kind of freedom. And my writing when so young was incredible. Not to mention like the sports, we're not going to make this all about Ludlow High, I promise. <laughs> but like, I don't know about you, but just the sports atmosphere at the time we were in high school too, just the dominance of Ludlow soccer's programs over our entire life, especially while we were in high school. That is a thousand percent a huge reason I am in this industry. Ludlow's in the Hall of Fame, right? We're in the Soccer Hall of Fame over 20 division one state soccer championships and, and like not to, a zillion Western mass ones. And not to mention too, we had a semi-pro soccer team based in our hometown that would pack the stands every single Friday yep. night. We yep. grew up going to Western mass pioneers games. That was the thing you did. And then they would have, you know, college students, but you had a tweet about this, about growing up, going and watching women's soccer. It was like a very empowering thing to see because women's and men's soccer was treated equally. You know what I mean? As like just powerhouses. Yeah. It was like a brand new women's team for division one girls that have hopes of the NWSL and some NWSL players just in this summer league to stay in shape. Ludlow was packing the stands. It's just, I always say like you're, it's funny to walk around Ludlow because you're just as likely to see a Ronaldo or a Messi jersey as you are a Tom Brady one for a Massachusetts suburb. Honestly, watching, like, I am not Portuguese. I get mistaken for Portuguese a lot because I've got the the complexion. Huge Portuguese culture in Ludlow. Uh, A lot of first, second, third generations. That's why soccer is so huge. Yes. And so I can't remember what World Cup it was. But you would be driving around town and people would be blaring Portuguese music, waving flags whenever they won a mm-hmm. game. It was just, and I have never been really at the high school it, games. But... At the high school mm-hmm. games, you look in every newspaper and the championship photo, there's always a Portuguese flag in it. And I've never really stopped to think about that being an influence for me getting into it, like getting into covering sports. But I mean, when I think back to the things that I was writing in high school, it was the soccer games were the ones I w- you were like elbowing people out of the way to cover. Whereas like when yeah. I went to Quinnipiac, it was hockey games like were the ones that everyone wanted to be covering. Everyone was fighting for those spots in the press box. It's interesting to, to think about now. Absolutely. So let's talk a little bit about your transition, why you decided to become a reporter, why you wanted to get into sports, got into this job with the Patriots. I was thinking about this before we came on. I made notes about myself strange, but like, 
just going into an interview. That's usually what I do. So it felt like I needed to be prepared. But I remember doing a project in eighth grade where you had to pick a career and like the life that you wanted and had to make like a realistic budget based on it and math class or something. And oh, Miss Miata's class? I, I can't remember who it was, but it, yeah, it was like, Miata did a project like that with us. Yeah. You, you had to like make a budget. And I, in eighth grade, I said, I want to be a magazine editor. And I, I credit that to Thirsty and going on 30. Cause it was, I was thinking like 17 magazine was, Love was the end you. goal. I remember looking up the salary of a magazine editor and being like, what? <laughs> I can't pay all my bills. <laughs> like, I yeah, can't that's do a big move. <laughs> yeah. like, In oh, hindsight, maybe that project crushed a lot of people's shoes. <laughs> you know, like it could have. It probably should have crushed mine. So I remember thinking like even as far back as middle school that I wanted to be a writer and I wanted to be an editor for some kind of magazine. And then I remember the summer that I sprained my, I think, MCL playing soccer. I couldn't do shit. I couldn't do anything because I was on crutches. And so I stayed home and I watched the Red Sox every night with my mom and I just fell in love with baseball. And so I started reading a history of the Red Sox, reading a whole history of the team. And I wanted to be an MLBB writer. That was the goal I came out of that summer with. And that was when I started taking journalism classes. And that's kind of how it happened. I started reading Rick Riley, loved how he wrote. And like, I, I loved the voice and having fun with writing. That's kind of where it all started. And then covered a ton of stuff. In high school, I wrote about my Jersey curse in the Western Mass Sports Journal, which is like now doesn't exist. But I wrote about this wild column. Anytime I bought a jersey or like a t-shirt, that player would get cut. Thinking about it, like it actually was pretty legit. But that was the first time I had a piece that was published outside of. So um, you were kind of like the Drake of buying jerseys. Yes. Yeah. yeah <laughs> Anytime <laughs> you buy. <laughs> <laughs> like even like I started buying retired players because I thought that would be safe. I bought like a Yaz jersey. And then he had a triple bypass surgery literally a month <gasps> oh later. My <laughs> oh my God. So I was done. I'm done. So you can't have it. So it's just like. There's the Dre curse. There's the Madden curse. And there's the Angelique, and the Angelique Fizz Fizz curse. curse. I did when I was in Miami this year, I did buy a Dwayne Wade jersey just because I love the Miami jerseys and I love Mr. Gabrielle oh, Union. So, yes. I, <laughs> so I hope nothing happens to Dwayne Wade. I also, I broke my wrist literally the first day of seventh grade, which is exactly what you want when school finally starts to kind of matter and you have to take notes. And I just didn't have a right hand for like four oh months, God. but it was part of the reason that I got so into baseball. Like I was already a huge Red Sox fan, but having all this free time where I couldn't be the one to take notes or do my homework without somebody there to transcribe for me. I watched so much more baseball and I read so many baseball books because we weren't really like a TV family. We were like a mm -hmm. books family. And I feel like a lot of kids have that story. Kind of being forced into this injury sidelining situation causes you to fall in love with something that maybe otherwise you wouldn't have. And I think that's so cool. Yeah, that's so true. Like it's just, I guess, especially with baseball, because if you're not paying attention to it all the time, it can be hard to like, I don't know, like check in, check out, even though that's mostly how I consume baseball now. But being able to just dive fully in for a whole season, that's what really gets you because the beauty of the game is the small moments. So when you yeah. can, when you're able to see that, like, that's when you really kind of fall in love with it. That's like, why baseball is such a misunderstood sport, too. Mm -hmm. I became a huge basketball fan after like a year because I read Kemba's Players Tribune thing. I was already like a Celtics fan. And now I'm like, I went to 12 games this year and I yeah. would give Kemba one of my kidneys. <laughs> Basketball is not something I 
have a lot of knowledge about, which is funny because basketball and I were born in the same spot. Yeah, but I got Springfield. Yeah, <laughs> yep. I'm, I'm watching the Jordan documentary and it's funny because like I could easily Google the results or, of stuff, but like it's a documentary of things that have happened that I have lived through this time and I'm watching it like I have no idea what's going to happen because like, <laughs> I just am so clueless with basketball. It's just never been well, my forte. It's probably making Although, it more enjoyable for you. Yeah, yeah, it is. But I do, I like watching basketball games here and there. I, I mean, they're incredibly entertaining, but just the history of the league and like, I just have no knowledge. What are you going to do? It's okay. That's yeah. how I am with football. So, <laughs> so you go to college. I think you graduated and were working for like a weekly or daily out in yeah. Western Mass, right? And then tell us about just, I know your story of moving out to Boston is a different one. I loved my job at the, the Reminder in Western Massachusetts. It was a weekly newspaper and I was covering four small cities, generously called cities and or like towns and um, covering like local politics, state senate races, city council meetings. And it was so different than anything I was used to covering, but I loved it. And I kind of just had an opportunity to move to Boston with one of my best friends from college. And I stand by it that this was the dumbest thing I have ever done. Like, I just quit my job. I quit a job that I loved and I moved to Boston. I didn't have a job lined up. I was applying to everything, everything that I mildly met the the requirements for PR, marketing, like anything. I wasn't being picky. And finally, like, I think it was around March. I had moved there in January. So I had got a job at a newspaper. It was an atrocious experience out here. So I quit after two weeks. Like it was horrible. I'm not going to get into the details of that because it was like just so bad. Then I applied for this job and I got to the point where like, and I'm sure anyone that's been applying for jobs, especially in this industry, you get to the point where you're just like, fuck it. Like I, what, what do I have to lose at this point? So I saw this job posting and it was like mostly like off the field stuff. And I read the job description and this was the first time that I was like, I could actually do that. And I think I would do a good job of it. And so I applied for it. And that was the first time I went into an interview experience kind of talked myself fake it till I make it because I was feeling so down with myself because I couldn't get a job and I think you know anyone that has gone through looking for a job when you're unemployed it can really take a toll on your mental health and your emotional health and so I really I went in and I like faked a smile went in talked to my, my future boss now and I sat down I felt like I presented well and I actually I my writing sample was something I wrote in college which looking back was kind of a weird move considering I had been a professional writer for a couple of years at that point. But then I got home, I drove from Foxborough to Brighton. I was like, okay, I think I did okay. I got a phone call by 5 p.m. that day that I got the job and I was starting on Monday. So my whole world flipped on a switch. I thought I was going to have to move home back with my parents and I was really in a very low place. And then in 24 hours time, I had my dream job. The coolest job ever. (laughs) It really just everything just kind of flipped on ahead. That's amazing. I mean, all of us have had that point where we've applied to like a million jobs and you're kind of like, is it even worth it? The amount of rejection in this industry, it's crazy. There was one one week where I applied to like 30 jobs. You know, you'll hear back from maybe some of them and then you maybe get an interview with one of them. If that, Mm -hmm. it's tough. But once you got your dream job, what is it like? What's your game day routine like? It's changed a lot since I started. So now I am part of like our social media team. So 
during a game, I am monitoring our Twitter mentions and interacting with fans, liking stuff or replying. And if I notice something, like if I notice a trend, that could be something that we can jump on. I'll send it to our social media manager and stuff like that. So just trying to keep an eye on what the conversation is around the game. But if something else is happening, like Isaiah Thomas was at a game a couple of years ago. And so I got to interview him on the sidelines and write something about that. For In terms of stories that I'm writing, it's more like fan experiences or if we have like a, like a celebrity or like something cool happening on the sidelines. Those are the kind of stories I'm writing around a game or afterwards I'll be going through, you know, what the conversation is in the locker rooms. Last year, a lot of the conversation was about how dominant Stefan Gilmore was because he was, he's just a shutdown player. So there was a couple of times where I just pulled tweets about what his teammates were saying. So if Julian Edelman was talking about how great Stefan was, I'd pull those and like Darrell Rivas talking about him and like, whatever it might be into something that kind of fit the conversation that was happening on social media, if that makes sense. So you get a much different view of covering a Patriots game mm-hmm. than most media, like say I would yes. covering one for Nesson. Working for the team, just the access you get, really unprecedented, I feel like. What players have you gotten the closest to with that? What does that allow you to kind of see about them and the organization itself? It's interesting because a lot of our access is kind of like our in-house media team is similar to what our external media gets. You know what I mean? Like we're we're in locker room with our beat writers and stuff working the same way to like build those relationships. We're really lucky. Every guy in our locker room has been phenomenal to work with. And I think I'm someone that when they're hosting charity events or things like that, I'm for the most part always going and covering that. So I think a lot of the guys know that I'm someone that when they're trying to push something out that they're doing, like the work in the community, I'm someone that will show up and will write about it and try to like shine a light on the really good work that they're doing in the community. So I think that helps in a lot of cases build positive relationships with players because I'm trying to showcase them as human beings and the stuff that they care about. So that's been been very helpful. I love reading about all the Patriots philanthropy and seeing your guidelines. What's one event you covered or one charity thing with a player that really stood out to you the most? So when Kyle Van Noy was here, he did a lot of work with the foster care community. I think that is something that it's a community that often gets overlooked. That one was really eye-opening in a lot of levels because you don't realize how difficult things can be when you're a foster care family or a kid in foster care. There is so much up in the air. There's so much change and there's so many questions all the time. So Kyle would host these incredible events and he was just great with the kids. He would let them like pick on him and he would give it right back to them. And he was like very playful with them. The last years he would host like a Christmas event and he would give away decorations and trees and things like that. And he was signing an autograph for a kid and gave like a fist bump. And I saw him like the the kid and his mother walk away or his foster mom walk away and the foster mom started was crying and so the jerk journalist I am immediately followed because I was like something interesting is going on here and so I went and talked to her and she was like they this was their first time fostering and she was like it was just incredible for him to see other kids that are in the same situation and to know that he's not alone and that just like absolutely broke me down <laughs> it was like oh my god it was a really incredible thing but I mean, Kyle I'm honestly, Van Noy was a foster child, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so he was adopted when he was really young. I think he was a baby when he was adopted. And then his wife, Marissa, who is just like absolutely incredible. Her brother was adopted and her father was adopted. So it's something that's like close very to close home. to their hearts. Yeah. So they did a lot of that work in Detroit. And I'm like, I know they're going to continue doing it in Miami. So it's just like another city that's going to be able to be touched by what they're doing. Oh, I love that. 
really amazing when these athletes do stuff like this. I mean, that's that's something that Al and I talked about in the last episode of the pod, too, mm-hmm. of like athletes don't have to be super outspoken or political if they don't want to, to each their own. But it's so great when you see athletes using their platforms. Like I saw you retweeted a thing today about Brandon Copeland giving, mm-hmm. like making that donation to help people with food in impoverished neighborhoods in New England. That kind of stuff is so important because these athletes, especially with social media now and you working in social media, you know how much of an impact even tweeting a link to a GoFundMe can make or, you know, to a different charity. Like it really does make a a world of difference for so many people. And we need that more than ever now from people who have the ability to make their voices heard above the crowd. And I think too, like the thing that I've learned a lot is just even spending time in whatever area that they're choosing to work with, like not even just the money, but, you know, seeing the way that kids light up when they meet like Devin McCourty, that is really impactful. And to know that they're on their side is really, really huge. I mean, I have seen more of these events that I can count over the last, I think this is, I'm going into my fifth season with the team. Like it is, I don't know, it gets me every time, which is, which is nice to and now feel fulfilled in your work. It seems like a majority of the stuff is just like really positive <laughs> stories that you get to write about. Whereas as much as we love sports, you have like the fun NHL storylines going around yesterday about that group chat. The stories coming out today about Earl Thomas and his wife and their issues. It's like you get to really just highlight some of the best stories athletics and sports have to offer all the time. What's your favorite thing you've ever gotten to write about? Two things come to mind. So one was 2018. Juwan Bentley, who was a rookie at the time, he participated in like an event that we host every year called Thanksgiving in a Basket. The crafts have been doing it for, I think last year was the 25th year. And it's just, you know, it's a Thanksgiving dinner giveaway in um, Roxbury. Afterwards, he wanted to share his story of his upbringing. And he grew up like effectively homeless. Like he was bouncing between couches, like of family members. He was like, he would crash at friends' homes and for his whole life would just not open up well to his friends and his, his teammates. And like, whenever they asked, like if they could come over, he would deflect. So the next day, and this was the Wednesday before Thanksgiving, he decided he wanted to share his story for Thanksgiving because he thought he had just put his family in an apartment and got them permanent residence. So he wanted to share this. And I got to sit with him and have an hour long conversation and turn that story around for Thanksgiving morning. And I felt like it was the most pressure I've ever had on a story because it was something so personal for him. And it was something that I was being trusted to tell. And it wasn't just to the world. It was to his world, to his friends, to his family, to his teammates who didn't know. But that was, I think, my favorite story that I've been able to to write because I felt like extremely honored to be able to write it. And then the other story was last year, the McCourty twins hosted a premiere for um, a documentary. Ken Burns was one of the producers on. So um, they hosted like a premiere event. And it was about this college program and like in a prison, they hosted like a panel with Ken Burns and then the two directors with the McCourty twins. And then people who graduated from the program who were incarcerated, but still earned a college degree. And that entire event was just like the most moving thing I've ever been to. It was an unbelievable night. I cried. And then I was really proud of the story that came from that. Just to like keep the lightness kind of going, because yes. I feel like one of the things about right now is like we're all so used to seeing tough stuff on our social media and like in the news. Everything is scary. Everything is dark. I'm not like a huge football fan, but I've been so bored. I actually watched the NFL draft, so I need to know. <laughs> 
any content plans for Nike, the dog, oh my God. the star of Nike. the show, because I believe all sports need more dogs. <laughs> Nike is the that's gift like, that That's the hill I'll giving. die on. <laughs> I support that hill. I, I joke that I am like the Patriots dog beat reporter because I get so, <laughs> so many true. stories about, I write so many stories about dogs, but like, it's not like punishment. I'm reaching for these. I'm like, please let me write about this. Nike was the greatest gift that we could have received during the draft. I had the same reaction everybody else was. I was watching it. I see Cliff Kingsbury's home and I'm like, holy crap. And then Mike Rabel, whatever was happening on night one. And then just seeing Nike sitting at the computer, I lost it. Like I absolutely lost it. It was so perfect. So unexpected. Cause like you, you just expect to see, you know, classic Bill Belichick just on the phone acting like no one's there. And instead we were truly blessed with Nike Nike. chilling in Nantucket. Nike. (laughs) Oh my God. And like, I used to use this gif all the time of like a dog sitting at a computer, just pawing away. And oh, I feel yeah, like that's I, I know that re- one. <laughs> and I feel like Nike has replaced that gif in my, yeah, my heart and in my soul. It's also such a like different side of Belichick. I mean, especially cause like doing the draft at home so much more personal, like, especially with the guys who did the old spice promotion, seeing guys mm-hmm. in their sweats, seeing guys in their, you know, parents' living rooms with, like, their baby pictures around them and stuff. And then you've got Belichick, who it's, like, it's a joke on Twitter when he even smiles during, like, a presser after a game. And you've got Belichick, like, coming in, seeing Nike at the table and, like, giving him a treat. And it's just kind of like watching the Stone Mountain kind of crack a little bit. I was really interested to see how the draft was going to go. And I think, you know, the draft is such a special time of year. And I'm like a romantics, but you see all of these dreams come true for all of these young men. And it's like such an incredible night. And like you always get that vulnerable side with the draft picks, whether it's a camera at their home or at the event, like if it had been in Las Vegas or I was lucky enough to go to Nashville last year to work at the draft. And um, like to see that experience was unbelievable. But to see the side, like that side of the GMs and the the coaches and like I am an HGTV, like constantly on Zillow looking at homes. Like, so this was like, I like was a crack in my knuckles, like ready for all of this, just seeing inside everyone's homes, like seeing the knickknacks, the the moving Mike Ditka bobblehead and Roger Goodell's home, like <laughs> everything about it. It was just, you know, a lot of it could have been really, it could have been a weird experience because of the times that we're in, but I think they did a really good job of making it kind of like, I don't know, getting to see the other side of all of these people in the league. Like it was just, I thought it, it was incredible to see. Getting to see that Cliff Kingsbury and Kyle Shanahan like basically live in the same exact house too. Oh my god, <laughs> has to be I the will, same. I will never be over his home. I know we're like several weeks removed from the draft, but I keep thinking about it. Like it, it's unbelievable. But I, I can't remember if it was Mina Kimes or who, but who it was. But they're like, where are the outlets? Like where, where are his outlets? <laughs> I was like, that is, that's a good point. The he electricity just up. comes through the cloud. Honestly, though, like that's, those surfaces looked like they could have been like, like an automatic charging yeah, table. He, he lived in a spaceship. It was it's all beautiful though. Speaking of homes, I don't know if you saw the realtor that's selling Giselle and Tom's Brookline property. I saw the YouTube video of the virtual tour. I probably watched it 70 times and wrote about it. So no, I did not. I haven't seen that, but he uh, he lives right down the st- he lived right down the street from my grandma. So I used to drive by his house like all the time. And his I remember date. when my dad first told me, yeah, <laughs> I remember when my dad first told me he's like, you know, that's where Tom Brady lives, right? And I was like, 
you know, it's kind of like when you see your teacher outside of school, like at the supermarket <laughs> or something, like, I don't think of Tom Brady being in a house. I know that he's like probably living in like his mansion in Florida now like, surrounded by avocados, but I don't think of him as like a person at home. I think of him in uniform on a football field. So I remember when he said like, this is where Brady lives. I was like, Tom Brady has a house. It, I don't know why. It just like had never really occurred to me that he went home from the football field. Well, I think it's when when people feel larger than life, it's hard to imagine them like having a life that's normal. So like, I think that, yeah. I mean, the teacher example is so true. Like when you see someone just outside, out and about, like living the normal lives, it's it can be unsettling to to see. It's like a dog walking on its hind legs. <laughs> especially when it's Brady and Giselle so it's like two of the world's most beautiful people like they don't seem like people because they're just so superhumanly like advanced that you're just like there's no way you like need to live in a house like you just like exist in a sphere like kind of glowing doing whatever you want you know not aging and did you ever get to have any interactions with them beyond um, with... like work stuff with Tom or not really he's someone that gets so many I feel like it's like an unwritten rule that like you don't talk to him, don't look at him for more than five seconds. Oh no, he's like like a human being. Yeah, Um, I did. I did an interview with him, especially because my stuff was like it's off the field stuff. If I made a request, like it had to be pretty big. So I didn't do an interview with him um, when Matt Light got inducted into the Hall of Fame, and that was actually like it was really really funny because I was doing a. a story on all of the pranks that he pulled and doing like kind of like an oral history. Although I didn't, I didn't have enough sources for it to be an oral history, but um, (laughs) he told some really funny stories about, I can't remember off the top of my head, but, and it, you know, it's the same, the same thing that everyone says when they meet Tom, it's like, hi, I'm Tom. And you're like, I, I know. No I know, shit, I Sherlock. Know I know you're tough. But like, it was just, you know, like any other interview would have been. But Giselle, I never, I saw her a couple of times and it was just like, you're beautiful. It's just like a light yeah. radiates and you get yeah, tingly yeah. inside. <laughs> I like know, I said, they just exist like glowing, like superhumans. <laughs> glowing in the sphere is like my, my new favorite thing. So him leaving, what was that like for you guys? Like finding that out from like a content production perspective. And then also as a um, fan, cause like, I don't know. I went through some shit when that happened. <laughs> yeah. And, you you know, were like, like my... I'm renaming my dog. <laughs> I didn't um, do it. You didn't know he kept it. No, he's still Brady. <laughs> you were like, you were, you did tweet though. You were like, if I were to name my dog, who's currently named Brady, what would I name him? Well, this dude's <laughs> about to be seven years old. This dude, my dog. I got Brady when Tom just had three Super Bowls. Like it's too many Super Bowls have been won to change it. That's true. That's true. My family has been season ticket holders for more than 20 years, I think. So, you know, like we were our fans first, but up until Super Bowl 49, that was the last one that I didn't work. We're like diehards, like absolutely diehards. So, you know, it it's sad to see like the end of that era. I think Devin McCourty had a really interesting Players Tribune essay um, around the same time when he re-signed, calling it like a, the next challenge and a new challenge in New England. And I think, you know, that works for us for a content stand- standpoint too. Like, and I think it's going to be a really interesting time to be a part of this organization. So I'm kind of, I'm excited to see like what's ahead and, and face the challenges that we we're going to have. Brady and Mookie and Gronk all gone from Boston sports. I mean, Gronk was already yeah. retired, but he was like very much around and now he's on retiring and joining Brady in Tampa. And you've got Mookie on the West Coast. In like a very short span, it seems like Boston sports fans lost a lot of their biggest figures, their favorite players. 
Brady and Mookie are supposed to be those guys that came up with their teams and just stayed there until retirement. What do you think it's going to be like for Boston sports fans when sports do return? Those narratives are going to definitely be very prominent, especially because Pats fans have very high expectations for their quarterback. Mm-hmm. Like, What do you think it's going to be like in terms of those storylines and the whole, can Belichick win without Brady? Can ba- Brady win without Belichick? All of that. I think that's a really interesting question because like you're, you're right. It is three major people from the Boston sports lexicon that are all just gone now. It's not even including Cora and like Brock Holt yeah. and like all of and the Kyrie other ones. Irving. That's just like, oh no, how sad. Uh, <laughs> I knew Al was going to be like, and Kyrie, um, <laughs> like Al Horford. There's just been like a lot of very surprising big change. I think, you know, when there is big change like this, at first, like you go through kind of like the stages of grief. I don't know the stages of grief off the top of my head, but um, you go through like this shock and like shock to the system. But then by the time we get to the point where sports are happening again, I think it's going to be kind of, and I, I'm, I don't know if this is me being an optimist, but it's going to be kind of exciting to see who steps up and who the city falls in love with next. 10 years ago, we didn't know Mookie. We didn't like, you know what I mean? Like there's going to be someone else that steps up whose personality we kind of fall in love with or who performs in like a way that's lovable. Like all you need is like a vibrant personality to step up and like say the right things or just uh, do the right things on the field, do the right things off the field. And I think it's going to be a chance to kind of, it's almost like dating, you know, where you're like, we're getting out there and we're going to meet someone new and hopefully they impress us. I don't know. We're going to figure it out. We're gonna we don't through cry together. the first time we see Brady with his new girlfriend. Yeah. <laughs> to me, it's still Nike the dog. My vote is Nike the dog for all, for all Boston sports. Loyal. I, he can be our gritty, you know, just like, yeah, that is quite a comparison. You stand by it. <laughs> I love it. I think we should like, dress him up and have him run yeah. out of the tunnel. <laughs> I did see someone once paint their dog orange and bring them to a Dodgers Astros World Series game. Oh, no. Who would you say is the new face of the New England Patriots? Oh, it's Nike hmm. the dog. Yeah, <laughs> honestly, Nike the dog. <laughs> The hero we we need, but do not deserve. (laughs) Honestly, the Batman of our generation. So Nike, other than Nike, I think Julian Edelman is going to step in nicely. He's got a killer social media presence and Boston loves him and he loves Boston. The McCourty twins, Matthew Slater, David Andrews. I think you're going to see a lot of faces, kind of a lot of personalities shining and coming through. We got a lot of new guys and I'm excited. Like Brandon Copeland. I mean, I haven't met him yet, but I talked to him about the stuff that he was doing to help in like response to COVID. We talked for like 45 minutes on the phone, which is like a pretty, pretty long interview for that kind of thing. And I mean, I think Patriots fans are really going to love him. We got a lot of new personalities that I'm excited to get to know and get to to meet and tell their story. So who knows? Honestly, who at this point, we got we got the established veterans, but I think there's going to be a lot of new new faces that people will be excited about. And that's why I love your podcast, which we haven't really plugged too much yet, but the Patriots yes. Off Topic podcast. You get mm-hmm. to showcase, I mean, the name says it all. It's Off Topic, Off the Field. You get, mm-hmm. get to really get to know these guys on your podcast. How did that idea to start it just come to be? Because it's so funny. The Patriots are such like a lockdown tight organization with media. And there's that really uptight kind of view of them and the players that kind of just like, we're doing our job. We're just helping our team, just Mm -hmm. happy to win. But you Mm -hmm. get a different side of them. So how did that podcast come to be? Well, it kind of came to be based on what I was writing. And like, I feel like a beat writer in a different way. Like I know a lot about these guys' personal lives that is like, 
kind of weird that I have all this information filed away, but it, you know, it's part of my job. Um, and I think the things that I cover, they lead to more personal conversations. Like if, especially if it's in the community and like, or things that can show some more personality. So that kind of is how it started. And we were looking to get more open up our broad or our um, podcasting like network a little bit. We have um, Patriots unfiltered, which was formerly um, Patriots football weekly. And like, that's a two hour radio show every week, but that's a podcast also. And then we have, you know, pre and post game podcasts, but looking to kind of get creative with what we were doing. And this seemed like an avenue to, to kind of pursue. So, you know, it's, it's a lot of fun. We get, um, you know, guys to come on and, you know, Brandon Bolden came on and gave us all of his advice for a scary movie, uh, like all of his scary movie recommendations. And that started because we were on a, a, like taking a bus ride up to, I think a military base. And I want to say it was New Hampshire. And like, so we were in the, on a bus for a very long time. And I hear him like rattling off all of these movies he's watching. And like my mind immediately goes, you want to come on the podcast? And like, this was the first time I had seen him since he came back to New England. And so I was so excited to see him because he is such a, he is such a big personality and he is so funny. Um, and so I was like, this is a great opportunity for you to like show that side of yourself. And like, for the most part, these guys have been very game to do that, which is really exciting to see them kind of buy into what, to what we're doing. So who have been your top three favorite guests on the pod? Oh, and is God. Martellus Bennett one of them? <laughs> Oh my God. I haven't had Martellus Bennett on yet. Oh, you I no. Did you wrote about him maybe before? I, uh, yeah. I used to write like when he was here, he was like a gift from the content gods. It was great. He's but I actually, one of my favorite players ever. He's so great. I Martellus Bennett and his family. I follow his wife, Siggy on Instagram. I Same. loved, like, I loved working with him. He was just so interesting. You never knew what was going to come out of his mouth, but I actually, when he was here for the season opener last year, I had reached out through our PR department asking him to come up like come on the podcast while he was here and he never answered <laughs> and I was like you're not typical like it's fine and then um I ended up getting Drew Bledsoe which like oh no like what a what a second which I think Drew would be in my top three but Drew walks in and he was like oh yeah I spent actually the whole morning with Martellus Bennett uh he said to say hi and I was like <laughs> come on the podcast you're like, his you replacement guest <laughs> you didn't answer the emails but other than that, like if he's, if he comes back around, like that is definitely for sure one I would like to get on just because he is just so entertaining. Getting to talk to and meet Drew Bledsoe, you know, was like probably the one time that I fan, like not fangirled, but like had to check myself a little bit because he was someone I grew up watching. He's just also very tall. Like he felt very tall. So like, but he was just such a great conversationalist. He actually just launched a podcast too. He had mentioned it when he was on but he was a great, great person to have on. Stefan Gilmore was really fun because I feel like people never really get to hear him talk for long because he is yeah. he's pretty shy and like pretty quiet. So getting him to sit down for an extended conversation was a lot of fun. And then we had Camille and we had Gronk on and they were both great. Brandon Bolden, that conversation was really fun. And then Lawrence Guy, I think, was one that I think people might be surprised by because there's a informal anime club in our defensive lineman crew. I love and that so story. He, it's wild. They love anime. They're talking about movies all the time. And so he was just rattling pop culture stuff off the entire time. So that was a wild ride. But I mean, all of the guests that we've had on have been interesting in different ways. That's like a very politician answer. But I think those are those ones are the ones that stand out the most. Who is your dream guest to have on the show? Oh, oh God. 
my dream guest. I did an interview with a couple of celebrity Patriots fans. So, you know, we had Kevin went from The Bachelor and I'm like, I hate this about myself, but I love The Bachelor. So I was so excited to have him on. So in that vein, like a celebrity fan, I would perish if I could have Chris Evans on the podcast. Very strongly agree. <laughs> I feel like that's kind of attainable. Like he has to come back to Boston for games. I hope right? so. I, um, Sometimes maybe he he was at Super Bowl fifty one. I don't know if he was at Super Bowl fifty three, but there's like a video of him like absolutely losing his mind when they won Super Bowl fifty one. I interviewed him once actually. Him and Robert Kraft teamed up with Christopher's Haven, which is an organization in Boston that provides housing for families of pediatric cancer patients or pediatric patients that are getting medical help in Boston. His mom's friend runs Christopher's Haven. So he works really closely with them. And so I interviewed him for like three minutes. It was amazing. He was so nice. Captain America, what a guy. He was actually, he was quite nice. So I think he would be my dream podcast guest. I loved that Boston commercial that they did where it was like John Krasinski. Yeah, (laughs) Smackpack. And David Ortiz like screaming out the window like a tiny old lady. (laughs) Like a fake, terrible Boston accent. Oh my God. So we do have one last question that we've been asking all of our guests, you've experienced some pretty cool sports moments in your life between Ludlow High Soccer State Championships and like Super Bowls, a couple, two (laughs) or three. Uh, What is your favorite sports memory? Oh, God. Covering or? Anything. Anything. Maybe both. Man, I... I know this is like a cop-out answer, but it's really hard to be being at Super Bowl 51. I didn't have to work the game itself. I got to just enjoy as a fan, which is always interesting when you go from sitting in a press box where you can't really react or have emotions when something is happening to, you know, being around fans and like being in the middle of the action. So I always forget that I can react to things like (laughs) as they're happening. We had like a section with all employees and this girl that sat behind me, this girl, Kristen, at halftime, everyone was miserable. And she was like, you know, all we have to do is do this, do this, do this, do this. And like, and then we'll go into, like, we could go into overtime. We could come back, like whatever. She was the only one that had the optimism optimism. and like the foresight. And we're all like, just shut up, Kristen, like stop talking. And then it happened. And like, it was truly like the most surreal experience to see that live. And then just go out and see Boston from a duck boat. Like I had never been to a Super Bowl parade. I had never been to a World Series parade or any kind of parade. And to experience that from a duck boat and like try to be capturing content from it was just absolutely unbelievable. I mean, seeing Copley, just people as far back as you can see, confetti flying through the air. It really made me fall in love with the city all over again and fall in love with this team and what I do. It was just unbelievable to see millions of people coming out to cheer them on after that. So I think that whole week was the most surreal week of my life. And the best week of my life. Yo, I have the chills. <laughs> Same. I know that we said that was our last question, but just really quickly, because of your answer, I started thinking about this. With all of the stuff going on in the world right now, I just realized championship parades are going to be yeah. not really a thing for a while, probably, even if a team wins whatever kind of postseason baseball has, or if football has a Super Bowl this year. A lot of people aren't going to feel safe gathering and crazy party hordes like that in the street. Very sad to think about. Your story gave me chills and I was like, oh my God, wait. Isn't it wild too? Like now that we're living through this, we see something on TV and we see like people hugging or like at like a crowded bar and you're like, what the hell are you doing? Go away, go like get away from each other, like stop touching each other. It's wild how it's like already reframing how we see things like that. But I just like leaving the house, not wearing a mask or something. I'm like, where's your mask? Where's your Purell? 
And I think right now, like I hadn't really thought about this, but looking back on something like that, it makes me appreciate it even more because it was something, a group experience that was just so pure and so full of love and so full of excitement. And I don't know when we'll be able to have that again. So like, I think looking back to that or Super Bowl 51 parade or just being with my friends at a bar, like those are moments that I'm looking back now and just really appreciating more than ever. Yeah. If any good comes out of it, it's that, right? A new appreciation for just your life. Yeah, just basic things that you get to do every day or things that are once in a lifetime, like a Super Bowl parade. Yeah, or things that seem so obvious and given, like finding toilet paper at the supermarket. (laughs) Yeah. Oh, God. But anyway, (laughs) as we all Uh, trend towards depression. (laughs) Yeah, it was a nice like 45 minutes where we were happy. (laughs) This was so much fun. Long time overdue. Thank you so much for coming on. I can't tell you how honored I am that you would even think to ask me. So this is so exciting. It was our honor to have you. Thank you. So that was our interview with Angelique. And I don't know if you guys have noticed, but we started off Girl at the Game doing an interview with one incredible woman from each of the four major sports. And we did that on purpose because we wanted to highlight just how many amazing women there are working in this industry and give you guys some insight into what they go through, what they've learned, and what they do every day, just to show you how many of us there are. That being said, we're going to switch it up for you guys next episode and bring in a little testosterone. I am so excited. Red Sox fans, you are going to be hyped We have a former Red Sox World Series champion on our next episode. We talk all kinds of Red Sox clubhouse dish. Reversing the curse. Reversing the curse. So that's your latest hint. He's on the 04 team. But suffice to say, we are so excited. We can't wait for you guys to hear this next interview. And as always, you can follow Girl at the Game on Instagram and Twitter at Girl at the Game. Check out the articles on girlatthegame.com. And don't forget, subscribe and rate the show. Send it to your friends. And yeah, now we'll send you guys off with our uh, throwback of the episode from Miss Rihanna. What a queen. Bye, guys. Love is all we need.